millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears Magazine with me, Edwin Smith. On the show, I speak to entrepreneurs, high net worth individuals and their most trusted advisors to unravel how the world of wealth really works. My guest this time is Guy Hans. In 2002, he founded Terra Firma, which had a string of successes and became one of the largest private equity firms in Europe. In 2007, Terra Firma completed the 4.2 billion takeover of EMI, the record label and music group that had the Beatles, the Rolling Stones and Kylie Minogue on its roster. The deal, which took place on the cusp of the financial crisis, was a high-profile disaster, resulting in heavy losses for Terra Firma investors and for Hans himself. I spoke to him about his journey in his new, frank and revealing book, The Dealmaker, Lessons from a Life in Private Equity. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome to another episode of World of Wealth from Spears Magazine. And I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by Guy Hans. Guy, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for having me. Where, where in the world are you? Are you at Terra Firma HQ at the moment? I'm in Guernsey, um, looking out across the sea, which is, it's a little bit of a rough day. We're into November. November's always a windy month, but um, it's, it's lovely. I'm delighted to be able to speak to you today. It's, it's a really good moment to be talking because your book, which I can hold up here with suddenly a foiling gold on the cover, The Dealmaker, Lessons in a Life Through Private Equity is published this week. And as we were just saying before we came on air, I've been reading it and I've been thoroughly enjoying it. I think it's revealing, detailed, exciting, personal, but perhaps I can ask you to give a bit of a, a sales pitch. What can you expect from it if you pick it up at your local bookshop? I think the book is interesting in that it was actually written over 17 years and it started off back in 2004, five, when I was probably at the peak of my career, had no real failures, just nothing but successful deals. Everything was looking wonderful. And I thought, oh, it'd be nice to write a book about private equity and 
how one can become an expert in private equity. By the time that was finished, we hit 2007, eight, and all of a sudden it didn't seem very appropriate to write that book. So we sort of scrapped that one, went on to one, which was about the crash. And that took till about 2011. And then we had the EMI trial. We lost the first trial and I thought that doesn't make sense. So we then wrote one on EMI and of course we then won the appeal and all of a sudden it went sub So we couldn't write the EMI one. I then thought I'm the Phoenix. I'm going to rise from the ashes. We got the second trial in 2016. That's going to go well. We've hired some new people. We're doing new deals. It's all going to be super. And so though we wrote a book, which is all about expecting a happy ending. There was no happy ending. We lost a trial in 2016. We lost a couple of our businesses, the beast of the East, the freeze on local authority spending. And basically I then wrote a book about going on to manage my own money and doing deal by deal. And then COVID hit near bankruptcy at the beginning of COVID fine in the end, but left with a year and a half ready to reflect. And so the book changed a lot in that final year and a half. And what it meant was that final year and a half brought a lot of the personal side into the book. Up until then, it was much more of a business book. And the reason it's got a, it's, it's got a very, I think, quite fast feeling to it. As somebody said, it's almost reads like a thriller is because effectively it's being written as it goes along. So to some extent, the reader, certainly for the last 17 years, actually gets something which is pretty much real time. And hopefully the excitement, I wouldn't say necessarily always happy times, but the excitement of the last 17 years comes across. It's, yeah, it certainly does. I'll just read a few of the sleep news here. It says, it describes Guy Han's career in private equity, first at Goldman and Nomura, and then as head of his own company, Terra Firma. It looks in detail at huge deals Terra Firma has done over the years, including everything from cinema chains and pubs to waste management, aircraft leasing, green energy. It offers a brutally honest appraisal of the deal that nearly bankrupted him, the acquisition of multinational music recording and publishing company, EMI. And I was wondering, because as I say, it's been a journey that is made very particular and unique to you, partly because of the challenges that you've overcome. And you write in the book about the dyslexia that you suffered from. You said in the book, there's a line that says you still spell like a seven-year-old and still read like a 13-year-old. How did that affect this process? Did it make the process difficult to get your whole life, as you have done in such detail, into this package, which has been done incredibly well? Was that an extra challenge? A huge challenge. It, it, the book, by the way, is cut down from around 1,200 pages to its current number. And we had to write about another 70 pages just to link the bits together. So it definitely isn't the whole life. It's purely really concentrating on the deal side of the life. So it's not an autobiography, but it has about 20, 30% autobiographical bits in it. And the deals are what the book's really about. It was very difficult. Some of the times I literally just spoke into a microphone for two or three hours, and then that was transcribed. And then the ghostwriters I worked with tried to put that into some form of syntax, sometimes very successfully, sometimes less successfully. But I had to stop myself being a perfectionist, otherwise the book would never have been finished because I really wanted to go through every line and every sentence, but that would have taken years. And we probably did three edits. And if it had been up to me and we'd had unlimited time, we'd have probably done 25 edits, but we stopped but we thought it, it sounds awful, but it's good enough. And I could go on at it forever, but if I go on it forever, we'll never get it finished. So 
I just had to sort of give up. I write very slowly. I can't read my own writing. So it did need somebody else to be involved all the way through a number of people. And these challenges that you've overcome with dyslexia, one of the most striking things to me was that despite all that, obviously you've had this great career that we all know about, but to get there, you went through Oxford, you have a degree in PPE, you then got into Goldman, you did all that with this, this difficulty of dyslexia. How did you manage that? How did you negotiate those really difficult early challenges that arguably set you up to have the success that you did go on to have? I think to some extent I had no choice. It was really either failure or pull myself out. And I, I was very lucky in some ways that I had this extraordinarily drive to be successful. And it, there's, there's a cost to that. But if you go back to Oxford, I didn't have any other university which was willing to take me besides Ulster in the middle of the troubles. I had an A and an E. And my first choice college at Oxford just said, no, we're not taking you. And so I camped out at my second choice college. And I just basically was a pain to the poor principal secretary and just insisted that I got an interview. And eventually, I think to get rid of me, she agreed that I could meet the principal over lunch. And the principal and the uh, head of divinity quite liked me and got me to see the other tutors. And interestingly, I was chatting with Michael Friedman, who was the tutor of politics who took me. And I was, I think I was his first year uh, and he's of uh, people he accepted. Uh, and he said that what came across for me was just this very unusual mind, which just didn't think in a linear process. It jumped around and found answers where most people wouldn't because they wouldn't go to that space and that place. And certainly that's what I was doing in business at that time. And the question was, could I do it in the academic world? In the end, I wasn't very good at academics. I got a third from Oxford, but I did well enough to pass. And Goldman, again, I, I had debt because one of my businesses went wrong. And I ended up with a lot of debt, 40,000 pounds back in 1982, which was a huge amount of money in those days. Interest rates were 13% minimum and I was paying over 20. And the only company out there which would pay me enough money to get rid of that debt was Goldman. And I went to Goldman expecting to be there just I paid off the debt and ended up being there 13 years. But again, I had no choice. So there I applied on note paper for one of my businesses. I get my, I didn't give them a proper CV because if I had, it would look terrible. So I just simply said, I run my own business. I'm at Oxford. I've got a clean driving license and I'd like to be a salesman. Please interview me. And one of the guys who was Irish and quite jovial, decided to have lunch with me. I think it's a bit of entertainment, frankly. And 14 interviews later, they'd hired me to be a trader, but not a salesman. And from you were at Goldman for 13 years, you say you were head of the Eurobond desk, then you joined Nomura, the Japanese investment bank, and ran what was essentially a private equity division within the bank. And then you started your own firm, Terra Firma, in 2002. We've covered quite a lot of ground there quite quickly. But that firm then went on to become one of the top 10 alternative asset managers in the world. And you focused a lot on kind of infrastructure type, un unglamorous projects that you might use the word unglamorous in the book, German petrol stations, plane leasing, railways, trains. Why did those kinds of projects appeal to you? I think that there is probably uh, a deep rooted feeling in my mind that the areas where one can succeed in 
are areas where the people you're competing with don't have all the same skills. So I've always looked for areas where I have a skill where other people don't. So I always knew there was pointless me trying to be the best person in class academically because I was always going to lose. And these businesses, when I started looking at them, they, they weren't very attractive. So the people you're competing with didn't necessarily have a lot of general business skills. When we started with pubs, it wasn't seen as a hot sector. It was seen as a sector that was dying. It was seen as a sector which was just run by brewers. And we, we didn't bring anything particularly special to it if you'd gone into something like shopping malls in the States. But what we brought to it was something which the sector itself didn't have. And that meant we could actually, one stage we had 8,500 pubs, we could really transform the pub sector and make a lot of money out of that transformation. Again, to, to cover a lot of ground quite quickly, in 2007, the EMI deal came along. As we know, that didn't go so well. Is there one thing that you think now when you look back, that was the one big mistake we made that we shouldn't have done? Can you zero in on something like that? I think so, because we, everyone would say, oh, the timing was wrong. You, just, you did a deal just before uh, the crash, but of course, if everyone had known the crash was coming, no one would have been doing deals and the crash probably wouldn't have come. So the reality is that beginning period of 2007 up to sort of June, July, you know, it was an incredibly hot market and we had a lot of money and our investors wanted us to invest it. So we did. So, that, so that's the timing. I can't say that's a mistake because unless you've got foresight, you would have still made the same mistake. What I think was a mistake was the relationship that we lost with Citigroup. Citigroup were my closest relationship. The people at Citigroup were my closest business colleagues. And when it started to go wrong, rather than both sides saying, let's just get into a room. We've been friends for years. Let's sort this out. Both sides separated and started to use their lawyers. And that was the mistake. And I should have been a bigger person and actually gone to Citigroup said, look, this is complete S for both of us. Let's work out how together we solve this rather than fighting each other. But the advice we had from our lawyers was we needed to enforce the contract with them. The advice they had was they needed to get the money back from us. They wanted 5 billion back from us because they realized they couldn't syndicate it. We wanted the loan to last to 2014 because we realized it was going to take to 2014 to turn the business around. And we just ended up in a terrible place. So I just wasn't big enough to have that conversation. I think if I'd had that conversation January, February, 2008, they might've rejected me then, but I would at least have had a chance. And by never having that conversation and just relying on lawyers, it's a disaster. It's, look, it's like a divorce. And emotionally, it was very like a divorce. I, I can now look at it and say, these were decent people put in an impossible situation on both sides. And I don't have any animosity towards Citigroup or the people now. But at the time, you can't think of that way. You just focus on the detail and you get obsessed by little details and emails and messages and finding out things which you think you didn't know. And then you find out in reality, the problem was we both had a huge problem. Citigroup was fighting for its life. I was fighting for my life. And actually, we should have been fighting together, not against each other. And for those who haven't read the book yet, 
essentially there were two court cases, one in New York and one in London, both hinging really around the point that Citigroup may have known that Terraform was the only bidder for EMI at a certain stage in the process. And if, and this is you know, not been proven, we should move very quickly, if they had known that, they should have passed all that information. But that was obviously the point that the legal matters focused in on. But what was the sort of first cracks in the relationship? The first cracks started before then, before we, we knew. The first cracks really started before the deal even closed. Citigroup knew that they wouldn't be able to syndicate five billion of debt at that time. All the people who they were going to syndicate it to had disappeared. They blamed us rather than the market. It was the market's problem, not ours. And of course, they'd made a commitment to give it to us and they wanted out of that commitment. They didn't want to admit they wanted out of that commitment because they were concerned about their reputation if they admitted it. And we didn't want to kill the deal because we were concerned about our reputation if we killed it. I think in hindsight, we got advice that we couldn't kill the deal. I, I believe in hindsight, we should have and taken the consequences, frankly, not because the deal was the wrong deal because the deal was the right deal. It was just, we, the timing meant that Citigroup couldn't sell it, the debt down. And I don't think we thought through what the consequences on Citigroup would be of having a $5 billion loan to an English music company as Citigroup found itself in trouble and ended up being effectively owned by the American government for, for a period. Now you could say we, it was very difficult for us to think that through, and that's probably true. But if we had thought it through or if Citigroup had said it to us and we'd be able to have that face-to-face -face friendly conversation, we would have understood that they were in pain. And in fact, all we saw was our own pain. We didn't see their pain. And that's a big issue you have the whole time. And it's very interesting if you take today with Brexit and the French and the English, I've got huge sympathy for both, both the English and the French, but at the end of the day, Macron and Boris aren't helping the situation. This is a reality. You've got two countries, which, you know, it's a love hate relationship. But at the end of the day, we think the French are a bit odd, but we actually do love them. We love their food. We love their wine. We like their slightly strange habits. They think we're a bit stuck up and a bit prissy, but actually they quite like us as well. And we shouldn't be fighting over a, you know, a whole load of fish. We should be basically getting together. And it's, it's like a playground tiff. You just want some teacher to come along, grab Mac Macron and Boris and bang their heads together and give them a good spanking. It's just ridiculous. And it's, it runs the risk of destroying the relationship between the two countries. And it could drag the whole European Union into it. And then how does that help anyone? It's just macho, frankly, bullshit. And I, I sometimes when one's in a big place, and I definitely was in a big place with the EMI deal, one has to actually see that by being big, one has to be humble, have humility, and go right down. And maybe give the other side a little bit, maybe back off. The problem is that both Boris and Macron, they feel they've got to be strong, but actually strength sometimes is saying, actually, let's find a way through this. It's actually backing away. It's not going forward. And one of the things that was interesting to me reading your account of 
that time within the takeover of the business really was this concept of securitizing back catalogs of music. And obviously with the, uh, the uh, subprime mortgage crisis going on at the time, securitization was suddenly a, a, a dirty word, but we now see that that idea, your fundamental idea of securitizing the back catalogs of musicians is having a real moment now more than 10 years later with Blackstone investing a billion pounds in the hypnosis fund. Is this an area that you keep an eye on because of your history with it? I keep a bemused eye on it. I sometimes torture myself by calculating what the EMI deal would have made if we had managed to held it through to 2014 and still had it, which is about 10 to 12 times what we put into it on a conservative basis. No, our idea was absolutely right. And when we look back at the stuff that we did on an operational point of view, it's exactly what music companies do today. I don't think my execution was great on a personal basis. I, I think I probably managed to make a lot of enemies for no need, but the strategy and the philosophical understanding of how important music was and how music could be used and how much this copyright, which is just stunningly unique and motivates everybody, how much it was, could be worth was a hundred percent. It was, it would have been in, in dollar terms, my most successful deal ever by an enormous margin and quite possibly the most successful private equity deal ever, but it wasn't to be. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One of the things that you mentioned around coming out of that period and dealing with that time is that you felt you would have benefited from having a mentor. And I think you, you have since kind of forged that kind of relationship with, with several people. I mean, for other senior business people who don't themselves yet have a mentor, but think that they possibly should have one, what, what kind of advice would you offer? I would definitely get one. I think it's when you're running a firm, you are in a very lonely place an incredibly lonely place. 
you can talk to your family, but they will have a different view on it from what the business necessarily needs. You can talk to people in the business, but they've got their own personal views. So you actually need to have somebody who's probably been through it before, somebody who can just chat to you honestly. You, it's very different from a coach. You're not asking them, how do I do this? You're saying to them, look, I've got this problem. I just like to talk it through. And a good mentor just lets you talk until you come to a conclusion, which is yours, but they've given you a couple of points on the way. And they, they maybe would say, look, I had that problem myself and this is how it worked out for me. I'm not saying it's the right answer. In fact, in my case, it was, they say it was the wrong answer. This kind of thing. So I've had a lot of people come to me on, for example, legal issues, and I haven't been their mentor. And I said, look, you need to understand that if you can sue and you can go through it if you want, but why are you doing it? You know, are you doing it because you're angry or are you doing it because it's the right thing? And if you're doing it because you're angry and upset, you know, the lawyers will play on that. They'll get you to sue. Actually, it might not be the best thing for you and you might actually be wasting a large number of years of your life. And whatever any lawyer tells you, you're never more than 75% likely to win. There's always a 25% random bit. It's always going to take twice as long and it's always going to cost four times as much. And you're always going to get, if you win, half what you expect. So you put those numbers together and it's why America spends, I can't remember what the number is, but they spend more money on legal fees each year than they spend on research. And that's net after what's received back. And so if, if, if one were in the search for someone who'll tell them these home truths and these wise observations, how would you go about finding one? It's not necessarily an easy role to fill. No, there are now some organizations out there which actually have uh, collections of people who've reached a point in their lives where they're not working full time and who do want to give something back by helping young, younger businessmen and heads of companies. And so these organizations are quite good. That's how I've tended to do it. And it's worked very well for me. I'm not going to plug anyone, but I think you, know, you can find that. The other alternative is you can keep asking people you meet who you think, but that, you've got to build a relationship with them first. I think that's quite difficult. I'm not sure if somebody met me and said, no, guy, would I'd like you to be my mentor. I'm pretty sure I'd say no, because I haven't reached that point in my life where I feel I've got the time to spend on it. Because it is an investment of, of it is an investment of time for a mentor. It might, it's not the meeting or the chatting, it's the thinking through and very carefully giving someone a different perspective. And then you mentioned your projects at the moment, or you alluded to your projects at the moment, you're running the Hans family office. I know you've also got a political project called Engage Britain. Can we talk a little bit about that political venture and what you're hoping to achieve and what, what you're working on there? Yeah, Engage is actually, not, it's non-political in terms of party politics or any form of political view. It's really about process. And what it's saying is that we've had, I don't know, long period of time, certainly 40 years of rule, which has been based on people who get elected and are expected to be the experts. We've de taken away the experts from the civil service. So the politicians actually today have a lot more power. They actually do make decisions which affect everyone. 
and they pass more and more laws and they have more and more effect on everybody's lives. But people's actual connection to that is less and less. And when you ask people, are you involved, are you interested in politics? And most of the British population says no. When you ask them, are you interested in your local school? Everyone who's got kids says yes. Are you interested in health? Pretty well, everybody says yes. So what Engage is about is trying to get people engaged in the political process. It's about trying to get people back. In some ways, it's about trying to get the politicians to be the people's servants rather than the other way around. It's about trying to get across that the best answers don't necessarily sit in white or the houses of parliament, but sit directly in the communities which are affected. So if we want to solve the problem of gang violence in the UK, it's not going to be solved in Westminster. It's going to be solved on the streets. And it's going to be solved by actually talking to some of the communities around the country, which are, which are already making, so already solving it. One of the best statements I've heard so far from engage from a community leader, actually one involved in gang violence in terms of he was a gang member. He's not now he's trying to help kids get out of gangs and not join gangs in the first place. And he's in London is he said, I just don't want any more people coming along who are kissing babies. And I said, what do you mean by kissing babies? He said, they come, they want the photo op, they want to put their arm around me, they want a big picture, and they do nothing. And I've had so many ministers come and see me about what the great things we're doing, but I don't want any kissing babies. I want actual action. I want actually them to come and listen and then do something. And there's so many communities which during COVID did amazing things around the country. And so... Engage is really to try and get some of those messages across to get people involved. And I would say answer by answer, find solutions. And, and when I look at my businesses, most of the great solutions to our problems in our businesses have come very much from the ground level. All I've done is managed to take that and harness it across the whole business. You have a single idea and you harness it across the, the business and it becomes an important idea. One of the other things that you're working along, uh, working at the moment alongside the project with Engage is your own family office. I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about the kinds of projects and investments that you're looking at there. Yeah, we have, we split over, to, over 20 million. We rely very much on Terra Firma to advise us and to manage that area. And we do that sometimes by ourselves, sometimes with co-investors. And those are bigger transactions. Under 20 million, we are looking for things which we believe likely to have a good return, but also fit our ESG criteria and also will help us have a better understanding of where we could go with some of our bigger businesses in that we can see what's happening at a, at a development stage or a smaller stage and get an understanding there. And also businesses which we can grow. One of the criteria, is this something that's going to be scalable? So if we're going to do an investor investment in, say, a you know, startup internet business, which we, we do occasionally, not very often, is it going to be something which can be scaled? Or it, Because the risk is going to be there regardless, but what's the reward going to be if it works? And then you go from that to stuff which is second stage or third stage. And then again, how close are we? Is it going to actually be able to make it? And then and all the way through to in, in, investing in a SPAC or something. So it's a pretty broad range, but it's really, we want to invest in businesses and which are probably have a good ESG criteria, 
which can be scaled and which we think will make a difference. And the portfolio so far is, is doing remarkably well, which um, always makes me a little bit worried. The returns are extremely good at the moment, but it's not, it's only got about five years of age to it. So give it another five years and we can have another look. And just thinking about private equity at, at large, really, I read a statistic recently that during sort of the, the early, very successful years of Terra Firma, there was also a 500% increase in the volume of private equity deals across the industry. That's from 2002 to 2007. And now we keep seeing statistics on the allocation of family offices, funds and so forth. A large part of it goes into private equity and alternatives. Still, people are still looking at that option, but it also has its critics. There's a the recent uh, book called The Myth of Private Equity by uh, a professor of business at John Hopkins Carey Business School, Jeffrey Hook, who criticized it as a racket and seems to say that the, the fees built into the process, the way that top quartile performances have so rarely replicated over and over again, seems to mean that it's not the great deal that so many people seem to have thought that it is. Are those criticisms things that you have sympathies with, or would you come out still as a staunch supporter of private equity? I think I'm a staunch supporter of the concept of private equity. I think you have much more control on your company and you have much more alignment of interest between the people who are managing and the people who are investing. So the concept is good in the same way as the concept of capitalism is good. The problem is that capitalism, if it's unchecked, leads to monopolies and those monopolies then become very uncapitalist and just be become effectively their own sort of semi-dictatorship through their monopoly power. Private equity, if it reaches a point where actually the fees are so large that the people who are really in charge don't care about anything but the fees and it becomes asset gathering, then you are overpaying for what you're getting very substantially. The, the problem is, and I think this is why some of the family officers who are probably going to over the long term do better than the institutional investors in private equity. The, the problem is the institutions are scared of getting it wrong. And Schwarzman summed it up absolutely right by saying the whole thing to do when you're running a private equity firm is never lose money. You know, I look at the returns that we've had over the 20 years we've had. And if you invest based on returns, you'd, you'd invest us, so you wouldn't even think twice. But if you invest on wanting basically not to have losses and certainly not to have losses that are public, you'd never invest with us. So the question is, why are you investing in private equity? And you're paying these huge fees for people to take risk, to do stuff, which is very time consuming, to do stuff, which is very emotional, frankly. And yet having paid all that, you actually want them to almost coupon clip and that's it. And you start off with 250 million and you think, Hey, I can, I'm going to take risk. I'm going to do really go for the deals. I think. And a few years later, you've got 5 billion and it's, Oh, I've got to put this money to work. So I don't take any risk. We were unusual. We got to having 10 billion under, under management and it did a deal which had huge volatility to it at the wrong time. And that we shouldn't have put anything like that amount into it, but we always would have put that sort of amount into our deals earlier and post that fund we have as well. And we've put enormous amounts into single deals and we've mainly got them right. But you, it's difficult to, if you're in an institution and one of your funds has just put 30% of its money into a deal which has gone wrong and it's your biggest loss, it doesn't look good when you go to the, the board. If you're a family office 
you look at it and say, what's that actually re representative of my wealth? Oh, it represents one and a half percent. Okay. You know, guy's made a mistake, but you know, he's made me a lot of money on other stuff. You know, I understand why he did it. I understand what's happened to the market. Let's move on. So I think that's why I think the returns in private equity are going down, but it's partly the investors, not necessarily the private equity firms. And we certainly, when we put money into private equity, we try and put it into funds, which are small enough that the people running them, our investment matters to them and the carry matters to them, not the fees. And another one of the things that's occupying many of our readers at the moment is the idea of a wealth tax. I wondered if you had any view on whether that was a good idea, whether you thought it was likely to materialize or just your, your general sense of the debate at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I think wealth taxes are not good taxes at all. And the same, if you can have a wealth tax, then it should also include people's property. In which case you're effectively having a property tax because that's going to be where most people's wealth is. If you have a wealth tax and you exclude property, it just means that those who invest their money are getting badly treated. And you know, the argument always against having a tax on property has been in the UK that we don't want, and it's always put as little old ladies being thrown out of the houses they've lived in for the last 50 years. If you introduced a wealth tax, 1%, there's lots of little old ladies will be thrown out of their house at the end of the first year. So it's not, it, I think there's this whole emotional issue about it. And it's completely unfair if you exclude houses. So I think the politicians, if they want to introduce a wealth tax, need to square that circle. And I know, talking to my wife, you know, she is emotionally completely against the concept of any tax on people's homes on a capital basis. Personally, I would rather have a tax on people's homes on a capital basis than a 15% stamp duty. That basically reduces the efficiency in, in society substantially. And it's slightly absurd. Logically, the UK should end up like Italy and houses should only change hands every hundred years and you just keep passing them down through the family. It's not good. Mobility in the UK economy has always been very useful and stamp duty get, reduces that mobility. But the wealth tax, I think just has so many different bits of it, which are so British that I think it's highly unlikely that it comes in. And I know you were involved in student politics at Oxford. William Hague was the best man at your wedding through Oxford Conservatives. But I also know that from reading your book, that your wife, Julia, assures you that she'll leave you if you ever go into politics. So it won't, so it won't ever happen, but you, you're obviously take a key interest in it. With that in mind, how might we plot a course if we're looking at wealth taxes and thinking they're probably not the best thing to do, they might stymie the economy. How might the current government plot a course for the UK economy to scare us on track in the wake of the pandemic? What like, sorts of things would you like to see done? I think it's the, when as I said a number of times, Brexit only works if the UK is willing to effectively become a Singapore. If it's not, then it's virtually impossible for the UK to compete on a global basis. If we were willing to become a Singapore, then I think we could compete quite easily. There's enormous issues about becoming a Singapore. You're, you're unraveling years and years of legislation, which some of which has been come from Europe probably suggested in the first place by the British who are responsible for 40% of the legislation in Europe. And some obviously suggested by Europeans and some has just been domestic. So to unravel the social fabric of Britain so that you could compete 
on an international basis is very difficult outside. It's very difficult. Being outside of Europe, we're going to have to do that. So my advice to the government would be either work out a way of getting back to a trade relationship with Europe very quickly and eat some humble pie. And they need to eat some humble pie as well. Frankly, they didn't treat us very well. It's both sides. It goes back to my issue about two tribes going to war. You sometimes you need to get past it. Or accept that the UK is going to be a very different place and you're going to have to work out how you sell that to the public and how you get that through. But so far, the talk from the Boris government is more red tape, more legislation, more taxation, and anything but a Singapore solution. And that just leads to being the sick man of Europe and we'll be back to the 70s quite soon. And quite scarily, some of the language that has been used is very similar to the language which was used at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. You know, the white heat of technology, you know, this idea that we can use our intellect to beat the world. It, it just, unfortunately, the rest of the world isn't that stupid. It really isn't. Very good. That's all we've got time for today. But thank you so much uh, for joining us. I'll just uh, give one last plug for the book, uh, The Dealmaker, Lessons from a life in private equity by Guy Hans really is a fantastic a book and anyone with interest in what we do here at Spears, investing and anything to do with that would do well to read it. It's uh, really entertaining. Guy, thank you so much for being with us on World of Wealth. It's been great to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears magazine with me, Edwin Smith. Our producers were Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Do subscribe to the show on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more from Spears or to subscribe to the magazine, head to spearswms.com. Until next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.